the thing that I love about the Psalms, immersing myself in that space, is to find myself attended to by all these sounds and all these spaces that make space for all the parts of my life that I often don't know how to hold together. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is David Taylor. David's a professor at Fuller Seminary and author of a book on the Psalms titled Open and Unafraid, The Psalms as a Guide to Life. The Psalms, the great prayer book of the church, its influence throughout the ages has been profound. From early church fathers and mothers, theologians, reformers, and mystics, over and over, we find it's been a substantial help in drawing the people of God into a deeper life of prayer. Oh, it's all in there. Beauty, grit, guttural ache, anger, tears, hope, soaring praises, and the proclamation of goodness and truth. And in the Psalter, we see ourselves and then we find a voice. I had the opportunity to talk with David about the Psalms and his book over a video call from his home in Austin, Texas. David, I'm, I'm curious to hear your story of discovering the Psalms. Well, the tradition I was raised in, which would be called Free Church, Nandanam, in the South, we call it Bible Church. We cared about Scripture, very much so. You know, expository preaching was a standard approach. And my memory is uh, spotty and leaky, but I can't remember a single sermon on the Psalms hmm. growing up. So I don't think at any point in my childhood that I ever have a sense of how normative and normal the Psalms have been for the church for 2,000 years. It's just that lay outside of our scope. Uh, and if anything, if I ever visited a, a Catholic mass, which is in Guatemala, where I was raised, or an Episcopal church in the States, and they would, you know, read the Psalms every Sunday, it would just be one of those things that I would perceive as perfunctory. You know, it's just what you had to do if you're Catholic or Episcopalian. And so it wasn't until graduate school and seminary that uh, I'd taken a course with Eugene Peterson, which he had titled Biblical Spirituality. And it was this magnificent vision of the Christian life, spiritual life, uh, rendered, you know, from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And it was magnificent, you know, everything, uh, insights into scripture, theology, church history, poetry, literature, yeah, Eugene was omnivorous in his reading, you know, appetites. But at no point in that course did he ever give us any advice. Like, this is what you can do to actually live into it. So I, I, I was frustrated at the end, and I thought that he's going to leave us without anything. And um, so I raised my hand. I said, hey. I didn't say, hey. <laughs> I said, Dr. Peterson. <laughs> I said, uh, could you just give us one thing, you know, one thing? So he thought about it 
And, um, and, and I, I read about it in the book, but he said, tomorrow, David, read Psalm 1. The next day, read Psalm 2. The day after that, read Psalm 3. Get to the end, start over. And that was it. And so I did, you know, sort of the, 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 the so ostensibly um, unexciting, unspectacular uh, practice. But for several years, I, that's exactly what I did. For 150 days, I would work my way through and then start over. And, and I, I allowed myself to read it in the way that he had invited us to read it, which was in a non-anxious way. <laughs> without feeling sort of this uh, acute need to get something every time, right? Just read, and if nothing happens, you just keep going. And if you're happy and you're reading a lament, that's fine. And if you're sad and you're reading a praise psalm, that's fine too. You just, it's, just, it's sort of this idea that he had of laundering yourself. And so that's what I did, yeah, in my mid-20s, then took a break, and then kind of over the years have adopted that practice and um, have loved it. You know, it's just that sense of the Psalms as a, a companion. And you have Christians throughout history that call it by, or describe it by different phrases, but they all get out the same thing. Like Tim Keller has called it the medicine chest of the heart. St. Athanasius called it the, the balm of salvation. Um, Calvin called it the anatomy of the soul. They're all getting at this basic idea that the Psalms are describing the contours of, of a human life that is prayed. And I think the thing that was fascinating for me was after reading it sort of in this contemplative, meditative, prayerful way, not, not studying, you know, not analyzing, but just sort of being present to it, you begin to discover things, you know, when you look at something long enough, <laughs> hopefully you notice things. <laughs> But one of the things that stood out was, you know, the, the language of the way, the, the term the way appears at the very beginning and then appears all throughout and then quite, you know, uh, comprehensively in Psalm 119 and then again towards the end. And then you realize that, that, that way language is wisdom language and wisdom language is walking language. And so growing up a nutrition that neither did much about it and perhaps placed a certain um, pressure, you know, upon one's experience of reading scripture. Um, and then in high school, I, I, I joined some charismatic churches and was a pastor at a charismatic church. So you do have this wonderful invitation to expect God to speak to you and to learn things. But uh, the, perhaps a weakness and that is endemic to that approach is sort of this pressure that you must. <laughs> and if you don't, um, you know, maybe there's been a failure on your side, but sort of to realize that, that this way language, this, this terminology of walking on the way is a real freeing one. You're kind of, you're ambling through life, not because you don't care about life, but because you're going at a measured pace and you're able to go at your own pace and to notice things. And, and I think that's what I needed um, in my 20s. And certainly, I think I had a better grasp of it my third, what grace was all about. But I think that's what the Psalms have, have really most deeply gifted me with, is the sense of uh, prayerful disposition or a prayerful way of being in the world 
that's very purposeful. There's a frame. You're going places. You're noticing things. You're on an actual path. But it's uh, there's a leisurely, non-anxious quality to it, which my personality and my church tradition, that was a gift to me. So, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, that's how I describe my discovery of the song. <laughs> I like this this picture of reading non-anxiously, just, <laughs> just meandering through. And there's something about when when you're not trying to accomplish finish the book you're, yes because you're going to repeat yes. it so you're just right. living into it there's no gold star at the end of no. no yeah i visited um the benedictine months at the saint john's community up in uh, collegeville minnesota which is saint john's abbey is that kind of real funky amazing piece of modernist catholic architecture <laughs> looks like a, well it is like it, it's intentional it's a, meant to look like a beehive. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I am interested in architecture, but, um, I, uh, this was a, a couple years ago and, um, and we worshiped with him. It must've been Vespers. And it's sort of one of those funny things where you hear how they, how they chant the Psalms, chant, speak the Psalms. And it sounds weird it almost sounds like not robotic, but like I can imagine somebody thinking it, it was fake, right? It was heartfelt. Um, but I think when you understand that <laughs> Benedictine months have been keeping that practice of reading the Psalms once a week, cover to cover for centuries, um, it's just sort of there. It's like a quirky old man, gate you know walking gate um like i went to uh my uncle's assisted living uh apartment yesterday with my family to sing him happy birthday at a safe 12 feet distance and um it was a sweet and sad thing but this old old man walked by and he did not have a mask on which i think he should have but he's just one of those sweet little odd old guys and he was walking sort of the circuit of the parking lot and sort of there's that sense of the Benedictines have been walking this circuit. Um, and they figured out a way to sound it out in a way that they're able to attend to the words. They're able to attend to each, each other's voices. And they're able to go slow enough to attend to their own voice. And as that voice sort of resounds in their own hearts. And being an Ang Anglican priest, I love the fact that we do pray the Psalms once a week. But I, I sometimes wonder if the, the pace at which we pray the Psalms, it's not like it's a mad dash, but it is, you know, um, a brisk pace. And I think to myself, I think we're missing something, you know, uh, that the Benedictines have in that slower, attentive, leisurely movement. And um, I don't know. I like that. I don't like that. Again, because my personality tends to be very driven <clears throat> and I live in a driven society and I'm in the academy, which is just hyper driven. And, <laughs> and so I need all the help, you know, I can get to get <laughs> undriven. <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of spending time with those brothers is kind of a hopeful recalibration. What have you found in this practice of daily working with the Psalm uh, slowly, not anxious, not not expecting 
fireworks, but being open to mm. how has that shaped your prayer life, mm. your marriage, your life as mm. an artist? Um, Those were three very different questions. You, you can choose one. <laughs> or, I mean, I mean, if we talk about my marriage, we're going to have to go into therapy session here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a particularly uh, unremarkable moment as a husband a couple of days ago. So <laughs> if you'd like to go there, Nathan, we could. <laughs> I'm sure there's a psalm for that. Huh? <laughs> oh, there is. <laughs> um, gosh, there, let me answer your question in two very different ways. What happens to me when I pray the psalms in this way? I will say kind of in the, as simply as possible. I begin to, I know it's going to sound like a really kind of terrible cliche. I'm going to use it anyway. The Psalms are like this, all 150 are like 150 musicians, instrumentalists. And they're all playing this one piece together. And by that, I mean, that's sort of the marvel, you know, the deep magic of the Psalms is that they're talking to each other. And it's the talking to each other that allows fulsome, effusive praise to coexist with this brutal and brutish enemy language and this heart-rending, almost look-away grief quality, you know? And I think that's one of the things that Christians really struggle with. Like, how do we hold them all together? And invariably, each of us and our communities adopt a canon within a canon. You know, it's the praise, it's the lament, it's the enemies, it's the whatever, you know? And I think the thing that I love about the Psalms, immersing myself in that space, is to find myself attended to by all these sounds and all these spaces that make space for all the parts of my life that I often don't know how to hold together. And so when we went through several miscarriages, which just was crushing. There was no sense of victory. There was no sense of overcoming. There was no sense of resolve to trust in the way that you see in you know lament psalms that it resolves in some some kind of you know affirmation. Like there was nothing. All we had was survival and grief and bitter tears and an utter sense of loss. And so the Psalms come along and give edited language to our unedited emotions, or they provide some kind of coherent picture to what felt like utter incoherence. Like there's nothing holds together. My second answer to your question is precisely that, that I don't think for most of my, I don't know what, first 25 years of my life, 30 years of my life, 35, uh, I had any sense how joy can exists in the same space as sorrow. There's sort of like they're discrete spaces. You occupy one, and then when you're done with that, you occupy the other. But again, kind of to use a musical, you know, metaphor, you know, great music is able to have those things coexist in the same sonic space. In a way that say painting can't do that. <laughs> you mix colors and they turn into something, you know, absolutely different. But in music, they can exist side by side. And I think that's the thing that's like, if you don't have that sense that lament can exist alongside joy in a way that happiness just conceptually, 
and psychologically and otherwise just doesn't know. It's like a, a magnet is constantly repelling sadness, sort of ha happiness in the way we normally understand it. I think that makes people crazy. I think that's like the crazy make one of the crazy making effects of life in a broken world. I think partly because when we have an experience that, that is disorienting or that throws us off or that kind of faces us with our utter incapacity to take care of ourselves, like utter powerlessness, then it's like we have no ability to name reality. The Psalms are what help us to name reality. And once you can name reality, I think you can live in it. Uh, like you can somehow make something of it. You can bear it, right? But when you can't name it, then it just becomes the specter. It's either like haunting or this black hole that seems to always suck life from you. But if you're able to name it, and again, I guess that's why I kind of started by saying sort of the Psalms are the symphony that all of them are together. And what people often ask me about is what do we do like with the enemy, you know, cursing and precatory. And the first thing I have to tell them is they don't exist by themselves. Uh, they exist in neighborly relation. Uh, they also exist in a community, in a community that actually, you know, did these things together. They're not these abstract, you know, linguistic units that you can just pull out and say, I'm now going to apply it to my neighbor, to the president, or, you know, whatever. Um, so the Psalms are very much a, a world that you inhabit, a world of music that you inhabit with others. And again, I just don't think my upbringing, my church tradition had that kind of comprehensive vision. I, I don't mean to say that in a demeaning way. Like I'm very deeply grateful, but I think it still had sort of this largely compartmentalized, you know, here we do exegesis, here we do expository preaching, here we do evangelism, here we do our devotionals. But somehow the Psalms, they're like a, they're like a, a poetic analog. David, it froze again. I am so sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. You froze on me. And I thought you were listening to me so attentive. I was like, Nathan <laughs> I was. is like a really good therapist. He was like, <laughs> just like, he was so captivated. He just got stuck. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was there. <laughs> no, it's all right, brother. It's all right. I lost you at poetic uh, analogy. Oh, okay. What I was saying was, the Psalter is like a poetic analog to the communion of saints throughout history, which is it's a very ragtag grab bag, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. <laughs> What's well, kind of what you have in the Psalms. <laughs> and that's the thing, like so much of our prayer practices or singing practices are invariably a canon within the canon, <clears throat> you know, whether it's Hillsong or, you know, Integrity Hosanna or, you know, choose, choose your musical tradition or source it's very hard to find any tradition including isaac watts who expunged all the curse psalms felt hmm. it was inappropriate for a christian to put those on, on on their lips and he's not alone i mean christians have felt that way pretty consistently throughout church history mm -hmm. so you know and i understand i understand why i mean it's it's terrifying stuff but i guess i've come to a place where i think i mean we can do it with care but i think we need to do it I think the enemy stuff is there for a reason, mm -hmm. for a pretty good reason. I mean, Miroslav Volf basically gives the answer that, that I think is persuasive. And that is, the enemy language is there uh, to and help us to name our revenge 
fantasies, uh, the revenge movements of our own hearts in order to rob us of the need to enact those revenge fantasies. So we can name it kind of in a, in a therapeutic sense. It's sort of this purging, this letting out always, of course, in the face, before the face of God. Like it's always before the face of God. David, what do you hope for folks reading your book? You know, honestly, which, what else would I tell you if it weren't honest? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I would love for people to fall in love with the Psalms. That's my hope. Um, Fall in love with the Psalms in the ways that Christians for 2,000 years have loved the Psalms. So I realize a lot of people don't really maybe think that Jesus had to learn how to pray. But he did, and he learned it in the way that every other, you know, Jewish person would. And he loved it. Um, you know, it's what he, it's the language he accessed in all his moments of trouble. It's what Eugene Peterson, you know, says about the Psalms, that most of them are written by people who find themselves in trouble. Um, and Jesus, you know, sort of is this exemplar of somebody who's in trouble and accesses the Psalms. He loves the Psalms. That's the main thing. And, and part of the reason I wrote it is because after collecting a library of, of wonderful psalm books, or books, I'm sorry, on the psalms, on the one side, it was like this substantial collection of academic books, but not very accessible. And on the other side were like more like daily devotionals, which were really, really wonderful, but um, didn't give you a sense of the whole picture of the psalms. And I wanted people to see the big picture uh, as a way to love this language of the heart, I guess. That's the thing that, that caught my attention, that, that first Psalm, Psalm 1, has this language of the way. And so you walk this, this way, this pilgrimage of prayer, and you pray your heart out, quite literally. Um, you pray your heart out about everything. I mean, there's really nothing in the Psalms that doesn't touch on every major part of human life. So I have a question I've been working with for a while. Okay. I, I like to write out my prayers. Yes, and, indeed. And I find the Psalms are such a helpful guide for, you know, how to pray. When they were written, were they edited? Did people, you know, labor good, over these? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Okay, I'm going to answer it. Uh, quickly before frozen out. The analog is Charles Wesley in the United Methodist hymnal, which is like Charles Wesley world. About 50 of his poems are chosen. He wrote probably 9,000. And biblical scholars say something similar is happening with the Psalms. They have several thousand possible poems that exist. 150 were chosen. They're chosen by a group of editors in what's called the Second Temple Period, which is you know, a few hundred years before Jesus arrives. It's unclear whether an individual, because there are particular Psalms that mirror each other so closely, scholars assume either an individual is reworking a poem or the editorial community is reworking a poem mm-hmm. or a Psalm, right? And so it's like poems get kind of recycled and repurposed um, for different reasons. And I, I mentioned some of that in the book. I think it's probably difficult to have any sense of how long some 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 individual labors over a poem is because all we have is this final edited collection. Somebody recently asked me, like, 
if I had some sense of the chronology of David's life, if I put all of his Psalms together, and my answer to her was to say, and I said this gently, but the Psalter and the community, the, the community of Israel, isn't interested in featuring David's life as an exemplar prayer-er. Like he's not a stellar, there's no hierarchy of praying, like the really good prayer people and the, and the not so good prayer people. Um, but in the same way that Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are in a trialogue with each other, mm-hmm. there's also a sense in which um, that the final community that pulls together this collection is wanting us to attend to all the voices that are played out, including guilds, right? There are guilds, poetic guilds. And there may be a sense in which that, you know, you could maybe deduce that poems are worked and reworked. It's just hard. It's really, really hard to kind of put your hand back into history and like actually see since it's just, you have so many filters and you have like superscriptions that tell you this happened at this time. And this is like a wedding, you know, poem. And this is a, you know, Psalms of Ascent. You have some of that, but there's also a sense in which the editorial community or, you know, those wise ones, I guess, that are entrusted with this task are wanting to have concrete historical rootedness, but also universal quality to it. So it's almost as if to say, um, we're not going to give you access to all the unique particular details of any one poem because it's the whole is intended to form us as a community. Um, so to answer your question more directly, you can see evidence of Psalms building and reworking other Psalms, but it's really hard to infer from that, the, the authorial sort of action behind it. One of the things I mentioned is they have some really, what you might call high end poetry, like really like stellar poetry. And some of the other Psalms are more workmanlike just meat and potatoes. And I think I find that to be incredibly encouraging. (laughs) It's not an elite journal of poetry. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's a little bit of like lots of different voices, poetic voices are invited to be part of the community. And I think that's so, that's such a generous spirit is what I find. I don't know. I find that deeply encouraging. I found it helpful to give myself freedom to edit or to like mm-hmm. work it and to just like I would with other yeah. writing and just yeah. really and not feel like it has to be just, you know, yeah. spot on, got it the first right. time. Right. I agree. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you'd hope that would be an intrinsic virtue. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. The thing about poetry, which is <clears throat> I have, you know, this chapter on poetry because I want people to understand that the poetry of the Psalms is. Um, a hospitable poetry. It's not for sophisticated elite, you know, Paris journal, uh, other literary journals. Um, it's for smarty pants. And it's like when you're a kid, you read tons of poetry in your children's books, right? And then you get to like middle school and junior high and you're reading it, you know, cause you have to, right. You have sort of that collection of great poems. And then in high school, it's like a little bit of a chore, and then you chuck it when you're in college, unless you have to, right? 
I think the thing that happens simultaneous to that, like, you know, what's the point? It's like, oh, they're like real poetry people. And then there's like the rest of us, the plebeians. I think that's such an unfortunate thing, especially in light of the fact that you have this, essentially the largest book in the Bible is poetry hmm. as a way to say that our knowledge of God doesn't do an end run around poetry. Our knowledge, our true knowledge of God goes through poetry. So it's not despite the poetic form that we know things about God. It's, it's the, the thorough, you know, thoroughfare through which. Um, and I just think a lot, a lot of us, a lot of us in the West, I guess, really struggle with poetry. I mean, except in songs, you know, songs, that's like a familiar world for, for poetry. But um, once you kind of get a hang of kind of how the Hebrew poetry works, it's such a delightful thing. I mean, it really is like as wonderful as Dr. Seuss, you know, with all of his, <laughs> all of his poems, you know? And, uh, and so I guess I would hope that people would rediscover, you know, that childlike love of the sounds of words and the playfulness of words. And uh, it's kind of a metaphor rich nature of, of language. Um, I hope so, you know, because I think that's been such a, I don't know, there's just, it's, it's a unique field of play, that kind of language. Field of play. There it is right there. That was David Taylor, author of Open and Unafraid, the Psalms as a Guide to Life. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort which offers resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing your questions and thoughts. Email at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Lee Rosevere. And I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast.